So today we introduce John Parkhurst, who is deep in the recovery field and frankly an amazing guy. He talks in really, really palpable, relatable terms about his underlying conditions, his internal dis-ease, and how that landed him essentially on the corner of Turk and Jones Street in San Francisco smoking crack. I think it's a very relatable interview in, in the sense that if you've got somebody in your life who's struggling with addiction and you're, you don't really get it, listen to John. John will explain it to you in very clear, unadulterated terms. He now has 16 years of sobriety, and during that time, he's built an amazing company called Go Seek Haven. And the only way I can describe it is like Craigslist for drug and alcohol treatment. Like you get on there and it lists sober living homes, clinics, treatment centers, the cost, whether or not they take insurance, where they are, and it's just kind of amazing. John also talks about his relationship to his higher power. We get into the definition of that. What is God? We talk about the legalization of drugs. I'm for it. He's not so much, but he makes some really salient points about that. We talk about resources for those who are struggling with addiction. And if you're a family of someone, a brother, sister, mother, wife of somebody who's struggling with addiction, what to do and what that looks like. And I hope you listen. At any rate, thank you for joining us. This is my podcast. Look, just tell me what to do. So, sir, who are you and uh, what brings you here? <laughs> We're starting. <laughs> we have begun. That's great, Ben. But I'm a sir now as are, we go through this after we go through this interview. Uh, so, uh, Jonathan Parkhurst, I'm kind of a native of uh, Michigan. Grew up in Flint, Michigan. Suffered the, the water issue, unemployment. And they were the murder capital of the United States for 19 years straight. So, I survived all of that to get here today. That's why you call me sir. Uh, well, yeah, that's well, that's that's probably a good reason. <laughs> when did things start getting interesting for you? Interesting. That's a funny way of putting it. I have what people would call, I have the childhood that people say you want to take a bat to the people that raised me. Um, I was born in Binghamton, New York in the 60s. My father lived in a projects. I just found this out. So oh. funny story is I, I went through a company called Adult Finder and I found my parents. So oh, I, really? yeah, yeah. I woke up one morning and it's like 530 in the morning and this guy that was on the TV, I wake up and this man is standing there he looks a lot like me and he's talking about his relationship with his daughter and this guy starts describing his story about how he found his parents and for the longest time my daughter has wanted me to find my my real parents i picked up the phone immediately and i called this adultfinder.com and they dove right in and within weeks they had located my mom oh wow so make a long story short i'm from binghamton new york my father was uh I lived in the projects. The funny story about that is, is that what I found out as I uncovered this was my mother was white, my father was black. It was 1966. That was not cool. Uh -huh. I was a surprise. She had oh. a boyfriend at the hospital. All of a sudden, this brown baby comes out and everybody's aghast. Oh, geez. And right. And so as I'm talking to my mother about this story, um, when I met her, she's acting as if it was just yesterday it happened. She's still mad at the nurse for saying, wow, that, <laughs> that, that child sure is dark. Oh you my know? God. It wasn't her place to say that, you yeah. know? And, and uh, her mom said, leave that, leave that thing here. And uh, that, was, that was my beginning. Leave that thing here. Leave that thing here. That, oof. And so that started my journey. I literally was born a John Doe in a hospital wow. in Binghamton, New York. And uh, that was extremely abusive. It was one of those ghetto houses. The only thing I can remember because I was only there until I was six was I had a phobia of toilets. Huh. And it was because I get locked in the bathroom 
when I was too loud and there was 12 other kids and they lock us into different rooms and closets and mm-hmm. I get locked into the bathroom and I flush the toilet and the toilet would overflow because invariably some kid put something in that toilet. Right. And so you flush the toilet and when you're a five-year-old, right. that toilet looks like a tsunami coming over the top. You yeah. can't shut it off and no one's it. coming, right? You're screaming and no one's coming. And, and it's so, gross. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so that was a phobia that I had for a lot of years was I couldn't wow. go to a public bathroom and- I'd have to open the stall and hit the thing and run out, right? Even as an adult. You know, a lot of my patients have dreams about overflowing toilets. Yeah. It's, an, it's a recurring dream with yep. people. It's like a- Scary. It is. And it's. I think it's a mixture of things being out of control and the shit coming up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like it's a, here we go. Right. Did you know that you had a white parent? I did. I knew from the time I was young that I was biracial. Who named you? I have three different first names and four different last names. So my first foster home, I kept the name David, which was my original name. Growing up in the foster home, I had white foster parents that took me in. The one that was the last one I was in, he put two names on a whiteboard, mm-hmm. Antoine and Jonathan. And at the age of six, I thought Antoine sounded like a girl's name. So I chose Jonathan. And mm-hmm. the reason he told me that was you can't be David because you're not my junior. His name was David. Okay. And this is a man who said he was going to adopt me and take care of me and Right. In public, he pretended like it was this great thing, but in private, it was a nightmare. He was terrible. He was a professor at the Kittering College, which is like the MIT of engineering. And uh, the abuse began. You know, they had suffered a severe loss. They had suffered a loss of a child that had lived for three years with a hole in their heart. And, oh, boy. And just, just what that does to a family, right? What mm-hmm. that does to a marriage. And, you know, um, they put a Band-Aid on it and these white people from Indiana, they decided they were going to do some good. And so they brought this poor black kid from New York, brought him home. I was not able to be held. Kind of like a kid on the spectrum, you Mm -hmm. know, autistic kids don't Mm -hmm. like to be touched. Mm -hmm. I was like that, right? The only time anybody ever touched me was to cause harm. And so she needed to have a boy that she could love and hug. And I wasn't available for that. I was severely traumatized. Oh. I wet the bed until I was eight. So that started even more problems, cold showers, beatings. I was a house of problems, right? Do you think that their grief towards losing their previous child was sort of focused on you? Certainly. I certainly feel like I was the Band-Aid. There was an aspiration. There was a dream that this was going to change things, Mm -hmm. right? And I lived up to none of that. Like, how how could you do this to us? Don't Right. Yeah. Right. And so she, I remember she stopped talking to me, literally. By the time I was nine, I recognized that she talked through him to me. So we never had a conversation. You tell him, da, da, da. Yeah. It got really bad. How long old were you? When when were you able to be touched? Like, how did that, that force field, I guess, you had around you? So the abuse got worse, burning of fingers and and rods and stuff like that. And and so um, I think it was my my first girlfriend, I mean, not even a girlfriend, my first experience with a girl was she was older uh-huh. and I was in middle school and she walked me home and, and her name was Connie. And she, you know, that was the first time I was actually able to be like touched right. in any way. How old were you? I was 13. 13. Was it frightening to be close to a human being? I don't know if it was frightening. I I, I mean, fear, you know, had long since left me at mm-hmm. that point. You know what I mean? I'd been, I was living in a, in a town where it was not 
safe to be African-American, especially Certainly. in the town, in the area of the town I was in. Right. I was in an affluent white neighborhood where you had to go through a not so affluent white neighborhood. And I was the only black kid. So I was chased home. I was beaten every day. And so I was no longer afraid of physical harm. It was more like survival. You know, you, you beat a dog enough times, the dog learns just how to avoid getting killed. Wow. Right? You must have been feral at that point. Pretty. Yeah, pretty feral. So sports, I was extremely focused. It was the only place that when you do something, you get the reward of that. Black is black, white is white, right? right. You you apply yourself, you are. Right. You hit the ball or you didn't. Right. I think that was more profound for me mm-hmm. was the sports and the friendships through mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. than any relationship of like physical contact with people. Were you verbal? Oh yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, yeah, I was. I, you know, people liked me people's parents like me. That's extraordinary. The um, the lack of connection you had with people, there was still a light on in there. There was still a fire going. Yeah. You know, I think I later come to realize that that was my higher power. Yeah. Right. But I sure. think that for a long time, you know, when I came to recovery, I told everybody, well, this God thing won't work for me. Me and God have a clear understanding. God can kiss my ass. Sure. And a lot of that is, would you say is anger at God? Oh man, God and I just, we're, you're, we're on the polar opposite sides yeah. of the world. Yeah. Don't even, yeah. don't even bother with me. My therapist told me a story about um, a, a couple that had lost a child, and the husband would suddenly, out of nowhere, start screaming at his wife out of the clear blue. Mm-hmm. And she's like, "Why is he so abusive to me?" And Seymour, my therapist, he said, "Well, you know, maybe he's angry at God, mm-hmm. not you, mm-hmm. for taking his son." What I tell people is that your relationship with God is more important than the question of whether or not God exists. Right. Because I think that a belief or a knowing of God, whatever that is to you, is whether you like it or not. Innate. I mean, even in, in parlance these days, people say, oh, the universe brought this, the universe brought that. They're using that word, the universe, because they don't want to sound like they're Christian. Right. Like, I don't, I don't believe in God. Right. Jesus, mm-hmm. all that stuff's terrible. It's like, well, you just, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you just acknowledged. You just right. acknowledge without, right. without acknowledging it, you know? You know, I wish I had heard that story so many years ago. I'd be honest, because what you just said was, while I tried desperately to, to denounce the existence of God, mm-hmm. it was clear that I yelled at God, spoke to God. Mm-hmm. I I did things to spite God, you know, but I don't believe in you. It was a mess. My relationship with God mm-hmm. determined how I did everything. So let's talk a little bit about that. I really want to make it clear to people when they hear the word God, they associate it with Christianity right. and the Christian a beard, Bible. Right. The beard, the punishing, the guy in the sky right? What right, I really right. want to make it clear to people is that it's more of an academic term. It's mm-hmm. like, what are we else are we supposed to say? I'm not going to say right. it's the universe because the universe is a technical term. Right. You know, for Carl Jung, the concept of God was the realm of the self mm-hmm. could not be meaningfully delineated from the realm of mystery and the realm of God, that, right. that you couldn't really do that. Sure. That when one speaks of God, one is speaking of things that are beyond or deeper than, more substantial than oneself. Right. Could you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I think that um, deism is another thing, which is the underlining totality of it all. If I unpack what you said, there was a knowingness that there was a God mm-hmm. and that God was punishing me. Mm -hmm. and that he was picking on me, and that I was not going to lose. And I don't know what that was. Where was the fight? Why Mm -hmm. was there so much fight in this dog when everything around me appeared hopeless? And the only thing I can tell you is is that there was a group of people. I had these families that supported me, Mm -hmm. took me in. When I said something happened, they believed me. I can't make you understand how important that was. For people to finally say, you know, it doesn't matter what his title was or who he was in the community. You're obviously hurting and you can stay here. You can stay here tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, you can stay for dinner. 
indefinitely. Um, I remember Judy Barker and, and George Barker, they're like parents to me. And she was a cake maker and he was a community director for a school. So he had keys to all the sports and basketballs and mm-hmm. baseballs. And and she was a cake maker, perfect mm-hmm. for kids, right? And we would go to her house and all the other kids, okay, time to go. Mm-hmm. And there was always this thing that was understood. Not you, Jonathan, you're, you're good. Stay as long as you like. And you attributed that to your relationship with a higher power? Or that there, that I, I there believe was- that there was always this ability built in me mm-hmm. to tell the difference between good and bad mm-hmm. and for people to see the good in me mm-hmm. regardless of my circumstances. There was a calm in me that mm-hmm. when I was around calmness, mm-hmm. how did I know how to be that? Right. All I'd grown up in was chaos before, Ben. Right. There had to be a higher power. Right. And so the sense that there's an innateness. If something like some being good is innate and that there's good in others and that people can see good in you, right. there must be something that, that was pre-programmed That's right. into the human psyche, That's right. which is indicative of something much, well, pretty fascinating. Do you think evil... I feel like that sometimes few folks get damaged to the point where they lose their connection with God or the depths or the good. I feel like evil is a manifestation of an ego that's completely cut off from the source and that they don't have access to that. Or somebody that can never get well, somebody that can never, I'm not saying that that people that can't get over addiction are are bad people, but I'm saying there's a certain level of fragmentation that I think exists within individuals where they don't have access to power greater than themselves and then they fail. You know, I have an interesting story around that. My ninth step in recovery was around amends. Mm -hmm. And the amends that my sponsor said I needed to make was to the man who beat me and tortured me. Oh, boy. I was like, I don't owe him anything. What he said to me was, this is for you to find freedom, for you to be able to see what God can do. Because if you lose this connection to God, you'll become just like him. I don't think he was made that way. Mm-hmm. I think that because of the loss and the torture that he went through, because I have kids and mm-hmm. I know that I've said out loud, if I were to lose my children, I would be dead 10 seconds later. There's, I do not want to know how to live my life without my children. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in learning that skill. And he did decide to do that. Mm-hmm. And so for that very reason, my only purpose in life was to find forgiveness. And through that, we might find peace for both of us. That's how I answer that question is, yeah, I believe he was cut off from any channel. He did not have an addiction that forced him to find a God. In his experience, it wasn't a big enough life experience to seek that greater power Mm -hmm. to rely on. So I felt fortunate that I did. So you were with this abusive family for how many years? From age I was there from the age of six until I ran away at 16. At 16 ran years old. Ran away. At 16 years old, uh, I came home oh. late from a football practice. He told me, don't you ever come home late. I came home late. I told him the coach had kept us over. He grabbed me by my afro and pulled so hard that half of my scalp came out. And oh. I, had, I had had it. And I picked up this man who was six foot six, uh-huh. and I was just this little twig, uh-huh. 118 pounds at the time, uh-huh. picked him up in rage, slammed him to the ground, and I just went berserk. I don't think I hurt him, but I scared him. Good. And he realized at that point, he said, get out of my house and don't ever come back. And I said, I will, you'll never see me again. And he didn't. He never saw me again in life. Where are they now? His wife since passed of bone marrow cancer, mm-hmm. and he lives in um, Swartz Creek, Michigan, just outside of Flint, where we grew up. He remarried. and Do you know him, or how do you— I just made that amends, and then he tried to be Facebook friends for a minute, and that he quickly decided that that wasn't something he wanted to see was me with my kids and, and all of that. He, you know, a new family— 
he told everybody, I'm coming off of Facebook. You know how people announce, you know, mm-hmm. I'm leaving Facebook as yeah. if, you know, oh my God, we're all going to be devastated that yeah. you're leaving Facebook. Leave Facebook. <laughs> Social media is so nice, funny. Nice I, I'm making a conscious, conscious decision to leave Facebook. I'm still on Instagram and Twitter <laughs> and I have a Slack channel, but fuck i'm leaving facebook man right right just let you all know you know it's like hold me back what a hero okay yeah. well i'm glad you got some peace and peace there That's peace so you left it what happened at 16 where'd you go what'd you do so this is where things get as you call interesting and this is where the higher power starts to kick in is one of my closest friends i called them and they let me stay there i lived with them for um, that year of school but there's definitely something broken in me ben you know, mm-hmm. there's something that's still haunting me. Even though I'm not physically being abused, I'm still feeling left out. I'm still feeling like I don't fit. And I become a little too difficult for them to deal with. I have a lot of emotional problems. Mm-hmm. You know, they have very close family. I'm feeling left out. They're like, you, you got to go. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't sign up for all this. And um, I play sports. Uh, I got hit by a drunk driver. I was uh, I played baseball with Jimmy Abbott, one-arm pitcher, not okay. a friend. And he was being scouted, and there were some people looking at me, driving home from my my summer job on my bicycle. I'm approaching my block, and this car is just sitting there facing me, and nothing's happening. So I'm sure they're waiting for me to go. And at the last minute, turns right in front of me. I'm traveling at almost 30 miles an hour because mm-hmm. I used to race 10 speeds. And so I'm, I'm riding like that. And I hit the hood of the car, flip over, and break my scapula, and my baseball career is over. Mm. Come to find out that he was looking on the floorboard for a bottle and then started turning when he found it before he looked oh, interesting. to see. He was making a left-hand turn, and he turned right in front of me into mm. the Double D Market, which is the liquor store that he was going to get his next bottle. How poetic, right? And uh, I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> were you an alcoholic so, at that point? No. Isn't no, that interesting? No. So it's like a reverse synchronicity. It is. So broke my scapula. Now I can't play baseball. Now I'm no God. And now I know me and God are like, you know, what am I going to do now? I'm never going to get out of Flint, Michigan. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to be stuck here in Flint, Michigan. I'm never going to be anything. Just like he said, a teacher, Marty Jennings. I was in an improv class in my junior year of high school. And he said, there's something special about you, man. I was that kid that if you told me there was something special about me, I'd latch onto that. And when he did that, that catapulted me into an acting career. Oh, really? Yeah, I continued doing acting. I finished high school doing a couple of big shows. I had a scholarship with Michigan, but couldn't take it because my grades were, they wouldn't allow me. They didn't accept me in mm-hmm. the school, which precipitated a, a suicide attempt. Oh, dear. Um, which put me in my best friend's home. How old are you? I'm uh, now 17. I'm in my senior year of high school, and they find me in my car with a hose that I had run up from the muffler trying to kill myself with carbon monoxide. That is uh, how I became Jonathan Parkhurst. My best friend's parents took me in. They grabbed me from the hospital. They took me in, and I lived with them ever since. Until? The day that I was leaving for the service. They called me into the family room. It was a big family meeting. You know, I didn't know what it was about. Mm-hmm. And I'm about to ship off. I'm about to go to, it was February 14th, 1986. And everybody's in the living room. And uh, Larry, now my father, says, we want to talk to you about something. We know that if you leave here, we may never see you again. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just your nature. But we realize that since you've been here with us, that our family is incomplete until you came. And we would ask you, not because we want to do this for you, but if you could do this for us, if you would allow me to call you my son, and would you take my name? Oh, wow. So they adopted Oh, you. man, I cried. Yeah, I but like, how old are you? They adopted me. I was, I was 18. I was oh, allowed wow. to legally do it myself. Oof. And uh, 
I became a Parkhurst at that time and I became my father's son. Something changed in me. I was empowered. Do you think that affected your relationship with God at all? For sure, he was a minister. Oh, he was <laughs> <laughs> He was an Episcopalian minister. Okay, because yeah. there's a lot of projection on on fathers. Oh yeah. With the whole God archetype. For sure. I saw this man who was probably five foot four in Flint, Michigan, serving a pantry out of his basement. I'm talking about the kind of pantry in a town mm -hmm. where just across the park there, there's gunshots every night because the crap game went wrong. And these people respect him in right. a way that he brings them into his house and they go downstairs for Easter, Christmas, and they get the food that wow. he gives them out of the pantry. Now, this gentleman came back again and my dad said, hey, he says, you've already been here. Mm -hmm. You know, I know you. And he starts to wrestle with my father. And my father and all of us start running to go see if we can help. Right. And we're launching from the top of the stairs and he starts hugging this man. Like literally he's hugging him and he mm -hmm. goes, you don't want to do this. And the man starts crying. Yeah, I watched him be this person every day mm -hmm. until he died. This is who my father was. So he, he was a big enough man to, to handle you. He was five foot four and he was handling life without physically handling people. Something was special about him. No situation required physical except yeah. a hug. He, more, more innate, um, pre-programmed, where does that come from this? Right. I, I, I mean, who knows? Uh, all I know is, is that he showed me the face of God. You know, when did he pass? He passed while I was in jail in 19, let's see, let me backtrack, 93, 96, it was about 98. Okay. So we've got some more story ahead of us, it sounds like. <laughs> so you went into the military. I went into the military to get out of Flint, Michigan and join the service and uh, did my time, was decorated, all of that good stuff. Did some binge drinking, stationed in Korea. My alcoholism started to kick in then. How much were you drinking? I would drink on the weekends, but when I did it, I'd drink to oblivion. They'd find me just outside the, the gate, plastered to the cement, yeah. fell out. I had to probably been in two or three fights that night, mm -hmm. like stuff like that. Sure. And, uh, and then I wouldn't do it for again for a few months and mm -hmm. then same thing get drunk like that mm -hmm. and so i i lost a stripe over it how does that work you can get article 15 which means you missed uh too many musters or too many you know what uh, are the stripes um you know private you private first class okay specialist sergeant oh those little sh those yeah those yeah those little those yeah. little yeah. stripes things. <clears throat> right, okay and so i lost a stripe because there had been like the second article 15 i'd had for missing a day or something like that and mm -hmm. they can't find me uh -huh. that's considered AWOL, especially when you're okay. overseas, absent without leave. So once you got out of the military, did that was that worse? Did that get worse? Like It what? got worse because when I got out of the military, I came back for a couple of months. I did a show in Ramsdale Theater in Manistee where James Earl Jones got his first start. So that's in right, Michigan, still doing acting. Mm -hmm. okay. So in Michigan, there's a theater called the Ramsdale Theater. And there I did 42nd Street, the musical. And I was the lead. It was great. Sold out show. And I was going to go to California and I was going to make it big. And mm -hmm. and they had Desert Storm. I was a reservist. Oh. I figured it's an easy paycheck. And it wasn't because yeah. they reactivated me. So I went overseas to Desert Storm. Jeez. Okay. And what I saw over there was a lot of mistakes, a lot of powerlessness, a mm -hmm. lot of things that reminded me of my childhood. Say more. So- there's a thing called people that were here during that time, they heard things like Patriot Missile and Scud Missile. Scud Missile is our enemies, and the Patriot Missile is ours, obviously, mm -hmm. Patriot America. And the Scud Missile is a land-to-land -land 
missile. It means that you shoot it from the land, it goes in the air in an arc, and it lands on a target. It's not sh- You're not shooting at airplanes, you're shooting at a target. Well, when it goes up in the air, the thing between where it shot from and where it's going mm-hmm. was the warehouse that we were all in when we first got there. Okay. And the Patriot missile would engage that thing right above where we were living. Oof. And it would engage it in a way that it would be not precise. And so if it split it in half it be- before it was heat activated to blow the whole thing up, if it nipped it, then the warhead would come off of that enemy scud right. and it would drop wherever it was. Well, every night we were betting on the shrapnel hitting our roof every night. What night would we hear the shrapnel of the scud missile? We thought it was all funny and everything like that. And one of the senior, we call him the first sergeant, he's the senior lead of our group, said, Hey, guys, what's so funny? We're like, we're running bets right here, Top. Why don't you get in on this? You know, mm-hmm. we're, you know, and we're betting on the minutes after midnight that the shrapnel will hit the top of the he said look up above you and it was just fiberglass it's just like you know there's nothing he goes you realize that that scud missile if it gets clipped the warhead could drop here and it won't detonate up top we need to put sandbags up there it'll detonate on the floor and all of us will be dead 82 hours later our forward mission which was my platoon and a number of other platoons left that location we left behind the rest of the battalion if you read the news mm-hmm. that battalion had a scud missile that was engaged and the warhead came through the roof and detonated inside that warehouse where we were staying jesus how many um in that particular we lost 62 and there were over a hundred and something injured how many are in a battalion a battalion is made up of over 400 people jesus christ so that was just one you know we had mm-hmm. sandstorms that we had to navigate around mm-hmm. so like we get weather here rain mm-hmm. snow you know we get sandstorm because of zero visibility. We're traveling across the desert. And I was with a tanker unit. You have live fuel. If you get caught in a sandstorm and you drive off of the road to stagger the vehicle and you do it wrong, mm-hmm. that fuel sloshes back and forth and that vehicle rolls. And that's exactly what happened. And one of the guys, their vehicle rolled and we were 12 hours trying to cut him out of there. He had eight kids that he left behind Oof. and he died. And it was all because we got a bad weather report. Yeah. Um, and then I'll just tell you the last one. I don't usually tell this one, but we were driving back and forth and we were just coming up on a site where we were supposed to deliver the fuel mm-hmm. and we smelled the smell. And you never forget this smell if you've never smelled it before. It's bad, but you don't know what it is. It's the smell of burning flesh. Oh, Jesus. And we came up on a French troop that had been hit by an air assault by Americans. We had the wrong coordinates. And we had rolled up on this and we could see the tanks on fire and the people and the burnt bodies hanging out of it. And the fear around that, Ben, is that you realize that they just fired on this zone and they think that this is a combat zone. They don't realize we're down here. And it gets scary. Yeah, I bet. Because they're precise with their air missions. So you're concerned? The concern yeah, we were concerned more, for our lives. More was coming. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, that's quite an image. Yeah. And are you drinking this whole time? No, because you can't drink in Saudi Arabia. It's illegal. Oh, okay. So we are making pruno, and we were hiding it. What is pruno? Uh, where you bury, you take all your fruits and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. you spoil it, and mm-hmm. you make wine. So you literally fill up these trash bags full of every fruit you get with your from the mess hall and everything like that, and mm-hmm. you bury this five-gallon trash bag in the sand, and you let it ferment. And it becomes the nastiest tasting wine you've ever had, (laughs) but it'll get you drunk. Uh, It'll also get you sick. Oh, I bet. You throw a little yeast in there and you just let it ferment. How long were you in the reserves for? How long were you in? So I rotated out of there after eight months. 
And then when you got back, what'd you do? Came to California, thought I was going to make it, landed here in San Francisco. And within a month, I was sitting on a corner of Golden Gate and Jones smoking crack. Oh boy. How did that happen? I avoided crack my whole life. And then I was at a party. It was a black light party with a bunch of college kids and they were passing freebase around. How old are you at this point? I'm now 24 and uh, they're smoking freebase, not crack, of course. And it's a black light party and naked girls. And, and I'm at this party and it's all college kids. You know, it's not like your normal crackhead on the middle of the street. You know, mm-hmm. it's, and uh, I have that thing in me that is more. And I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, after I went to that party, I chased that dragon for the next 20 years. Jesus Christ. Can you describe, I don't, I hear this story a lot about when people hold a drink in their hand and they, they feel like they found the answer, the solution to all their problems, yeah. or that moment when they, they try their drug of choice for the first time. Can you try to describe viscerally sort of the pull of that? So... I would describe it as this. I describe my childhood. I describe my life. And I, I was at dis-ease, right? There was always this feeling that I was never enough, mm-hmm. that there was a moment that I was going to be found out, that I was always set apart, right? Mm-hmm. I was always set apart. I was different than everyone else, mm-hmm. whether it was the color of my skin, my economic situation, mm-hmm. or the fact that I had no family of origin, right? And so there was always something odd about me that caused a tremendous amount of dis-ease in the way that I move through the world. And then you enter in a substance mm-hmm. that I instantly become communal and, and and fun and accepted and all those things that I thought I really cared about. I don't really care about that stuff. Right. I became very lighthearted and things roll off my back. That's the first time you try it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, whoa, that relieves so much of what I'm carrying throughout the day. Right. I want to do that again. And doing it on the weekends isn't really what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that when I go to work, when right. I interact with all of my friends, when I want to talk to this girl that I'm afraid to talk to because mm-hmm. I've got all of these things that tell me I'm not enough. Right. So I'm going to do it again mm-hmm. right now. And then what happens is, is that I don't get the same effect. It's slightly off. And so I do more and then I do more. And I start chasing that original feeling mm-hmm. that was an answer to all of that disease in my life that anybody I'm sure could understand when I described my childhood that I felt misplaced. I was born in the wrong time, the wrong era, the wrong, wrong everything was wrong. And all of a sudden, everything was right. Everything fit. Yeah. And then I chased it. And it only fit once, maybe twice. But I chased that feeling. I deserve to have that feeling every day. I assume you do. I assume she does, mm-hmm. right? By the way they move through the world, I'm positive that mm-hmm. they feel that feeling and I was born without it. I think of it as being in, the, when people are in balance, they're in the Tao, mm-hmm. you know, in harmony with life. Right. And I feel like drugs are sort of an artificial introduction to that. Yeah. I, I describe yeah. it as a, sort of an artificial spiritual experience. For sure. I feel like drugs remind even the most like sort of base uneducated sort of out there sensation type that the spiritual world exists and that it's important it's like showing you that there's this whole universe beyond yourself Uh, yeah i believe that it's a gateway i believe it's a gateway into something and it can open up uh, an understanding do you think that folks who are addicted to substances are somehow predisposed to chemicals allowing them access to that you know what i'm saying like yeah I do. I believe that I'm born into the fact that I'm 
I have an abnormal reaction. Because if people say, oh, it's a lack of willpower or it's this or it's mm. that, I'm like, no, I think that if any human being on the earth mm-hmm. felt what your average addict feels mm-hmm. when they're on their substance, you would be the same. Right. I think that people don't have, actually do not know. No. Um, like mm-hmm. my my substance, if there were one, would be, I'm, I'm sort of, a, binge eating is my thing. Mm-hmm. And I am pretty convinced that most people do not enjoy food to the level that I do. Right. I don't think they understand just how amazing food right, is. Right. <laughs> you know, um, right? Like the worst thing I can possibly do is like go go, go grocery shopping when I'm hungry. Right. Oh right, my god, right. it's such a terrible thing. <laughs> there's no place to put it all. No. What do you think of the disease model of addiction? I think there's so much more we still have to learn. I think that we think we know. That's the most dangerous person is a person that thinks they know. Yeah, beware of those who know, right? Right. Why do you suppose it's progressive? I'll have folks who they stop drinking and they stop using for some time, and I'll actually graph it on a whiteboard, mm-hmm. and they stop using. It's like you can see the line, you know, going up and to the right, and they stop using for like say six months or a year or two years or five years, and when they pick up again, the line it's almost like it's one continuous line, and there was just a blank spot in the middle. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it was as if it were getting worse the entire time, even though they were not using. Right. And I've seen that probably a hundred times. Yeah. What what is that? Well, from somebody that relapsed over twenty years, yeah. multiple times, I'd right. get a year relapse, right. get two years go out, and so I experienced that mm-hmm. anomaly that you're talking about, which right. is that literally would be picking up right where I'd left off when I, three years before, and now I'm going to the next level. Yeah, right. When they talk about the disease is progressive, I believe that I, I don't have an answer to that. I can just say from my experience. It was progressive because I was continuing to act as though I was still sick before I actually picked up. Uh The the addiction Uh. isn't me picking up. The addiction is all of the things that are broken in me that I need to be working on. That you have been working on. And right. So it's and like, so I had already started having a double life. I was, you know, going to the tenderloin and having, right. you know, sexual relationships with people on the street. I was I was doing things that were inevitably the end result was that I used. I that see. was the end result. That what I was sense. doing prior to that with lying on my taxes and lying to my employer and right. all those things that led up to it, that progression is hidden from everyone because I'm in my disease. I didn't think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like the chemical use is simply an after effect it's of the a larger effect. process that's mm-hmm. worsening within the person right. psychologically. Right. And so when somebody comes back and tells you uh-huh. what led up to it and they're honest, they can say, I was progressively getting worse and worse. When people say, well, there's this gap, is it really? Right. But if you look at it now linearly, you see, oh yeah, you were you had already upped the ante in the way that you were moving through the world, I dishonestly. I that like that. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Of mm-hmm. course, I, I'm, I'm feel like an idiot now. Okay, good. Well, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> well, that's not the goal here. <laughs> well, no, but I I like learning new things. So walk us through your crack addiction, if you feel inclined to dive right. into that, how you ended up in jail. It says in the doctor's opinion that he can no longer differentiate the true from the false. For him, the, this life seems to be the only normal one. And for me... Once I started on that path of, oh, I'll never do that. And then I did that. And then, oh, I'll never do that. It wasn't that bad. So, you know, and then I mm-hmm. won't ever do that. And I never go to jail. Well, I did. You know, mm-hmm. I never served time. I was like, your honor, I, I can't do a whole year. Mm-hmm. And he goes, that's okay. Do what you can. The state will do the rest. <laughs> and I didn't think that was funny at the time. I was yeah. like, I thought I was going to kill myself. And then I did two one-year sentences later, you know, and you become conditioned. And so by the time that I was saved i just about done everything then okay 
I've right. just about done everything. How old were you when you got saved? My first save, okay. I, seriously, it was a journey, was when I was about 27. When they arrested me the first time, that was the time I said, there's no way I can do the year. And, and mm-hmm. they sent me to jail. And, and it was then that my father passed. And the saddest thing about that is my father doesn't know me that way. He knows mm-hmm. me as this resilient young man who was served a really difficult time and, and loved his best friend and loved his loved him. And, and I was... I had this bright future. Mm-hmm. He hadn't heard from me in a couple of years because of my addiction. They only heard that I went to jail and that mm-hmm. I wouldn't accept any of their phone calls. Mm-hmm. That's that broken piece in me mm-hmm. that was reactivated. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to see me this way, you know, because it's all about me. Rather mm-hmm. than making you comfortable that I'm okay, I don't want to see you. I don't want to talk to you, right? And so imagine if you love somebody and they just won't see you, but you know that they need your help. And he passed. He uh, he went to the hospital for a small little lesion on his heart mm-hmm. or on his lung. And they removed it. It was supposed to be in and out that day. He went into the bathroom and he had a brain aneurysm oh. in the bathroom and died. I never got to say goodbye to him. Terrible. Um, it, <clears throat> and so that was the first time that I didn't realize I was saved. I felt like I was punished. The second time, they released me into a treatment center called Walden House. and I went the street. Through, yeah, around the street from here. Yeah. And I went through attack therapy and, and did the whole- What is attack therapy? They bring you in from the minute you come in. They sit you down on these- on this chair, they call it the monad, and you sit with your hands on your on your knees, and you uh-huh. you look forward, and people are walking by you, and they might say something to you. You can't say a word. You're demonstrating your willingness to be there. Oof. And so you may <laughs> sit there for ten minutes. You may sit there for five hours. Right. And I sat on the monad, and I was determined that I was going to be able to do this. People call you out and they scream at you and they tell you, you know, you're lying, what's mm-hmm. really going on. And, you know, and it worked for a time. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got out of treatment, I went back to my life. I could be very charming in person. Yeah. And, but I can also have a secondary life that's that grimy life that you don't need to know about that also fulfills me. And so I lived this duality in my life. This was after you got out of Walden House. Yeah. I picked up again after two years. So I got this great job at, mm-hmm. at uh, 24 Hour Fitness. Mm-hmm. It was when they were just getting started. I was their number one guy, you mm-hmm. know, because we do that as addicts and alcoholics. Anybody that's listening, you know, mm-hmm. we are, we excel. We're unbelievable people, mm-hmm. resilient. We can't show up on time every day, right? We're not that kind of resilient, but mm-hmm. we'll show up at 2 a.m. to help you with a, a main that broke or, mm-hmm. you know, we'll do these miraculous things, but consistency is not our game. And I would, I, I got this job at uh, 24 hour and it was great. You know, I, I, the guy that I worked for was sober and, and it was just like Camelot. I was like, pick up the phone and people want to get in shape and beautiful people working out and yeah. I had dates and, and I'm living on a cot in Walden House. How old are you at this point? 30? I'm 20, 28. 28. Okay. And my boss's boss's wife is a 49er cheerleader. And we're about to expand and buy Family Fitness. And I'm in the middle of this. They're like, you're our top guy. We Mm -hmm. want... So he's going to go down and he's going to be the president. My boss's bosses is going to be the president Mm -hmm. of Southern California. And so he wants me to train his wife. So I'm training his wife on how to be a great salesman. Mm -hmm. We fall in love. Oh, dear. We're having a full-on affair. I'm living in a treatment center with... Dating this 49er, you know what I mean? Like to me, it's like this will never happen to me again. Right. So, of course, I took the opportunity. Well, the dishonesty and the, again, I'm feeding into that duality of life. I have one life 
that looks and appears one way, but I've got this other life. So a lack of congruency. There's no congruency. My program today is based on the word integrity. I'm going to call a name out. Jerry Bear was my sponsor that got me this 16 years. Taught me that word integrity and what it truly means is I'm the same person whether I'm broke or I have money. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm at the grocery store and you can see me or I'm at home and you can't see me. Mm-hmm. I'm the same person if my my family member just died or if I'm getting married. Mm-hmm. I'm the same person wherever you see me. Sure. That's integrity. And in order to be that, I would have to have a power greater myself to do that because I've shown you through this whole podcast mm-hmm. that I have an inability to be able to bring congruency. Mm-hmm. I can't just manufacture that out of thin air. And so I'm sleeping with my boss's boss's wife. She tells me she's, you know, the the typical how affair life is, I'm going to leave him, I'm going to leave him, I'm going to leave him. And then mm-hmm. the day comes when he leaves to go down there to take over family fitness. Mm-hmm. And she says, I'm leaving. No, the story was you were leaving him, not you're leaving. Oh, yeah, no, Jonathan, I'm, I'm going to go with him. And I relapsed that night. Oh, dear. I go right down to the tender one. I'm, I'm managing the Circuit City 24-Hour Fitness right yeah. there on Van Ness. Yeah. Go right to the tenderloin and pour me. And I pick up another case and I do another eight months in okay. jail after having three years of sobriety. So picked up right where I left off. Ben, just so you have a picture of my life as mm-hmm. a crack addict, I had 25 felony arrests, oh, of right. which 15 of those were hand-to-hand sales to an undercover police officer of fake dope. I was out there selling fake dope to people, not fearful of them coming back and wanting to kill me. And I was selling it to undercover police officers when everybody else is running the other way. Mm-hmm. I'm walking towards the person. Are you looking? Are you looking? To feed my addiction. I'm a terrible criminal. Well, good. I mean, you say you're a good actor and a bad criminal. That's good news. I'm a terrible criminal. Thank God for that, right? Right. I sat right on the field Mm -hmm. when the 49ers played Green Bay talking to Jerry Rice. That's where that job had elevated me. And still, six months later, I'm smoking crack in the Tenderloin. Oh, boy. So what what was the final straw with you? For me, the final straw was my daughter was born, and I'd bought a house up in- Rona Park and life was good. And um, I started living that double life. I started cheating with girls in my office. And I don't have a family. Remember, I don't have, you know, I've always wanted to have kids. I've always wanted to to look at somebody that looks like me. I can't make you understand what that feels like, Ben. I live in a town where everybody's white. I was brought up by foster parents. Mm-hmm. Everybody's white. That's just at the very beginning of no one's like me. Then you dive deeper to all of them talk about when I was born, tell me how much I weighed, tell me what my life was like. I have one picture of myself from when I was a baby, Mm -hmm. one picture of when I was a kid. That's it. So that entire time from the time that I was an infant to Mm -hmm. the time that I have my own life, there are no pictures of me. There's no past. And so here God graces me with this child and I said, I'll never use, I'll never use again. Not only did I use, but this is a story that I'm allowed to tell. My, my ex will tell you the story, and this was the worst story. I'm in the Tenderloin. This is before we moved to Roner Park, and my my daughter is literally nine months old, and I'm full on, have relapsed, and I'm smoking crack. I'm a stay-at-home dad, and I'm driving from San Mateo to San Francisco to cop. I know I only have $15, but I need enough to go through the whole day. So I grab a knife from the kitchen, and I put my kid in the car, and I drive down here in a BMW, and I'm on Turk Street in the middle of broad daylight. 
I tell the drug dealer to get into the car, the Honduran to get into the car and show me what he has. He pulls out about 10 of them in his hand, wrapped in plastic. And I commence to trying to rip him off in my car while we're driving down the street with my little girl, my infant in the back seat. He pulls out a box cutter and we're going back and forth, swinging blades and box cutters each other in the middle of broad daylight on a weekday on Turk Street. That is not my bottom. That is just, no, no, that is not my bottom. I get what I get and I go. Days later, I go to play baseball and I'm in Las Vegas Mm -hmm. and I don't ever come back for 30 days. I just don't come back. When I do get back, I go into detox Mm because I have no money. I've lost everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The house is up for sale. She's leaving me, Mm -hmm. everything. And Jerry Bear walks into the detox center. He says, you know what your problem is? You have no integrity. You're two people. You're one person in private and another person in public. And when he told me, you're going to take the last, how much money do you have? $3,000. He said, you're going to take that last $3,000 and you're going to go to a treatment center and you're not going to learn a damn thing. Nothing. And I go, that's my last money. You don't understand, Jerry. It's not like you. If I fall, there's mm-hmm. no mom, no dad. There's nobody going to help me. Mm-hmm. There's, I, I'm the quarterback. If I get sacked, it's over. Mm-hmm. He goes, then you need a God. And I go, you don't understand. Me and God have a clear understanding. God can kiss my ass. He goes, don't use your God. Use mine. Mine works. Okay. <laughs> and so what happened, <laughs> it is great. It is great. <laughs> That's clever. Of course, I believe that Jerry was with me because mm-hmm. he showed me. I, I don't think that I believed in a God, right. but I believed in Jerry. Sure. And Jerry had a God, so that was fine with me. That, that's funny. It's a belief in God by proxy. <laughs> um, yeah, he was he was a savior for me. And mm-hmm. from that moment on, all we focused on was do what you say you're going to do, be impeccable with your word. And mm-hmm. everything that's given to you at this point in your mm-hmm. life is not your right, it's a privilege. Yeah. And that included being able to have access to my daughter. Because at that time, she, my daughter's mom was like, you'll never see your daughter again. We're mm-hmm. done with you. Sure. And, um, and because of integrity and because of helping me find a power greater than myself, from that day on, I never used another alcohol, drug. I quit smoking. That's a hell of a story, man. Can you explain to those listening um, what a bottom is? Because there's a lot of talk about that, and I don't yeah. think people really get it. People think that it's, a sub- that it's an objective measure of reality, right. and it's not. Mm-mm. It's a subjective it measure. Is. Could you talk about that? I Sure. I hope that this gets to some of the people that I've helped in interventions because we bring the bottom up. We don't have to let the bottom become a bottom. We can, we can give the appearance of a bottom. Mm-hmm. My belief of a bottom is when the pain of change becomes less than the pain to stay the same. Hmm. So at the current state, when a person is unwilling to change, it's because they believe the pain of change is greater than the pain to stay the same. And when we create that path mm-hmm. forward, where the pain of change is less than the pain to stay the same, they change. Well, that was amazing. You know, it's, it's funny. When I edit podcasts, everybody has their little verbal twerks, like they'll um or they'll they'll say you know or they'll stutter a little bit. You have none, and it's very suspicious, sir. <laughs> You're going to be a very easy edit. I don't know. I don't trust. Like, what's going on? This man has no verbal tics right. at all. Uh, you're very well spoken. Um, Thank you. So you now have a thing that you do that I don't quite get, and you're going to tell me about it and tell the world what it is. What what are you up to now? It's a couple of things. I guess in my life, you could only wish to be able to do something that Mm -hmm. reflects your life so that if nothing else, the legacy is, is that my children understand that whatever happened to me, we turned it into something greater. 
right? Recovery is finding a life of purpose. Sure. That is the definition of to recover. Whether you're an amputee or you're a, a person suffering from homelessness or addiction, mm-hmm. to recover is to find a life of purpose, meaning. Okay. And I'm now the founder of Seek Haven. Seek Haven, the name Seek Haven mm-hmm. came from the place of finding a temporary refuge or place for the persecuted persons or group of people. That's the definition of Haven. Okay. And Seek Haven is an application that you can go online, go seekhaven.com. And parents and probation officers and people looking for transitional housing like sober living or mm-hmm. homeless, you know, beds, they can find like a apartments.com or a truly they can find housing. Oh, so it has in, like filters like Craigslist. That's right. Huh? So they can find their price range. Do they take oh, insurance? Okay. Do they take medically assisted? All of that. Nothing like that exists currently on a large scale. And so we have the platform, goseekhaven.com. People can go in there and they can you know, either enter their homes there for free. So they can list their homes for free so that people can find them. So they just upload their pictures, Put they just follow the, the app. It shows them how to do it. So just for those of you who for those of you who don't know, what, what's a sober living house? Oh, so sober living is a transitional community living mm-hmm. facility. Mm-hmm. Some people call it halfway homes. Some people call them re- recovery residences. Mm-hmm. And what it is ultimately is a community living environment where multiple people live in a home mm-hmm. and they go to work or they go to school or whatever, mm-hmm. but they're in a safe environment where everyone has minimum requirements. They're sober. They usually have to you know, participate in some type of work or school. They right. have to be moving forward in their life. Right. And there's no fighting or sex or, you know, yeah, it's a safe environment. There's too. a curfew and they have exactly. random, random urinary right. analysis checks and things like that. Exactly. Okay. And so just so you know, there are 25,000 of these facilities in the United States. Really? Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> I didn't know there was that many. But there's a couple of caveats that we've added to help the addict and alcoholic start their process of recovery, even if they're struggling. Mm-hmm. There's a thing called recovery capital. It's an evidence-based modality that allows for a person to work through six different domains. Okay. Those domains are around their relationship to money, their relationship to their family or family of origin or what they consider their family, their avocation or vocation, um, their spiritual, and then their level of recovery, whatever they consider their recovery to be. And so you can measure those based on the way they move through the world. There's a certain evidence-based things you can do. For instance, mm-hmm. for our process, when you pay your rent, to your sober home, you now pay through our app. Okay. We report to the bureaus. So now the three bureaus are showing a credit line that is being paid on. Oh, interesting. Which will move your credit up to 26 points in just 90 days. Now, how does that affect you in recovery? Well, your relationship to money <laughs> is pretty important. Is pretty important. It's actually one of the top two things is yeah. stable housing yeah. and my relationship to money. Okay. And so stable housing will work on that. We start to raise the bar of the industry mm-hmm. by putting us all out there. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that it's the only industry, the only industry that mm-hmm. doesn't supply a large amount of subsidy for housing. In Section 8, HUD. You mean the addiction industry? Addiction industry. Right. So in addiction, all other levels of support around addiction are financed. Insurance pays for it. You could do a CPT code and you can pay for it. Mm-hmm. It's paid for by the state. There's billions of dollars being funneled into homelessness. Right. All you have to do is be homeless. But if you're in sobriety and you want to go into temporary housing after treatment, there's no subsidy. Why is that? Because we don't give a shit. Because you don't have enough data. 
to give a shit. And if you show a path forward Mm -hmm. of how sober living actually affects 90% of people that go into treatment and do not go into into sober living, Mm -hmm. relapse. Those people that do go into sober living, only 60% of those people relapse. So that's a 30% difference. Yeah, it's big. How big is 30%? Well, 30% is me sitting here in the room with you right now talking to you Mm -hmm. that that person Mm -hmm. went from where he was to where he is today Mm -hmm. to where I help hundreds of people find sobriety, and safe housing. That's amazing. That's what that recovery capital piece did for me, helping me build credit. Mm -hmm. The second thing we do is my recruiting background. I put that into the platform as well. So there is a thing called WTSI, Work Authorization Tax Credit. And right now, there is no one tracking how often we use it. Work Authorization Tax Credit is a $10,000 tax credit to Amazon. Amazon uses it. Caltrans. They hire people. Mm-hmm. And these are the four categories that if you hire anyone from these four categories, it's a $10,000 tax credit to that employer. 8% of all warehouse workers for Amazon were hired through this program. One, if you were recently incarcerated in the last year and released mm-hmm. and you were employed, $10,000 tax credit to the employer. Mm-hmm. Two, if you suffer from a mental or physical affliction mm-hmm. to include addiction, $10,000 tax credit. If you've lived on state aid for longer than six months, mm-hmm. which is considered an extended period of time, which includes mm-hmm. unemployment, which is half of America right mm-hmm. now, $10,000 tax credit. And the last one is if you recently came out of a war in the last year. So your organization that you created made this happen? No, this was already in place. We uh, just uncovered it oh. because I've been in recruiting for years and I own my own staffing firm. So I knew about it right. and no one's taking it. I shouldn't say no one. A lot of companies don't take advantage of it. So you did a lot of research. I did a ton of research. And I wanted people to be able to go to one place Mm -hmm. and see their path forward. Yeah. How can I recover? You won't believe the amount of resistance I still get from sober living facilities. So um, regarding what? Oh, you know, I don't know. It sounds like a lot of work, Jonathan. I don't know if I want a lot of work. All you're going to do is load your houses on there and I'm going to take the payment for you and I'm going to pay you your rent from them. And in that, you get to tell your people that you're going to fix their credit. And what is your, and uh, uh, do you get a cut of that or how it's does this, It's actually less than PayPal. So we're a payment processing company. So right. PayPal charges my client 3.8%. Right. We're charging 29 And they're like, well... I don't know. I mean, you know, it's guaranteed income. That's silly that they object to it. What's really troubling, Ben, is I also work on the board of Homes for the Homeless. And I'm going to really get to the core of what has happened to me in this transformation that I hope makes the cut. Mm -hmm. And when Homes for the Homeless takes containers, shipping containers, because we're a big import country, not Mm -hmm. an export. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of these containers that stay here. Oh, really? And so an organization that I work with takes those containers and we cut them into homes. Those big ones that you see on the boats that are like- The big ones that sit on on ships. Right. So 40-foot containers, we created homes out of those. Oh, wow. And so by doing so, we are now housing the homeless Mm -hmm. through the Home Key Project. So we have a five-acre property up in Sacramento Mm -hmm. that we're working with Supervisor Desmond and his team quite diligently to get Home Key money to fund that Mm -hmm. project. And we've got some inroads to the governor's office. So so we look good on that. My point to that is, is that the Home Key Project has already given out just in this year January to April, $680 million in housing homeless people. But you won't put any money forward for my comrades in recovery that are looking for housing 
to have a stable housing for six months. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people just, I think, assume that people are, oh, they're just fuck ups and they'll never, right. you know, they don't need, they, they don't, they don't realize how they much. They thought the same thing about homeless. Yeah. Why did that change? I'll tell you why. Because the issue around COVID and the fact that you had all of these people, mm-hmm. people complained. And so I started a pod, I started a radio show, mm-hmm. My Empowered Hour. My Empowered Hour is about people like you and I, mm-hmm. people that have been empowered and then they take that empowerment and they empower others on a larger scale. I live that. The reason why I'm in recovery for 16 years and have stayed sober mm-hmm. is because I have been empowered. I'm empowered by empowering others. When I'm having a bad day, man, I focus on those people I can empower. Mm-hmm. It's a simple word. Mm-hmm. I shared that with you earlier that a coach, a teacher in my past said, you know, there's something special about you, Jonathan. That word in my body molecularly changed the course of my direction and what I focused on. What does he see in me? What is it about me? What can I do? And it changed my trajectory in my life. That empowerment I use it with my kids. Mm -hmm. I use it with employees. I use it with homeless people that I help Mm -hmm. get into these container homes, and it works. Do you all have like a mentorship program through that thing as well? So that's the last part. You're, okay. you're like teeing it up like we talked before. Yeah, and, never, and we did. I've never no, actually. They need to know. I met that we you didn't once talk. like five years ago right, right, for like five minutes. I actually um, went through a program called the Speaker Lab, and somebody paid for me to become trained on being a paid public speaker. Okay. And I had to find my abstract. Mm-hmm. What is my topic? And you sat here with me very patiently for the last hour and a half listening mm-hmm. to me travel on about my history. And so I could talk about a lot of different things. And so it was difficult for me to land on something. But there was a person that I met. His name was Alex. I can't remember his last name. I'm blowing it. But he taught me about what his talk was about. And it was about find your verb. Your verb? What is your verb? What's my verb? The verb that describes you. Lay on the couch. <laughs> 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 it has to be one word, right? Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, so my verb to to take away the whole story because it took me a while to get here was empower. All right. And because of that, I now have a paid business where I speak to kids, mm-hmm. families, employers around empowerment. And that sequence has a workshop okay. that takes people through empowerment and recovery, okay. empowerment with kids at risk youth that I work with. I work okay. with Sonoma County Probation, and we put them to work to build showers for the homeless. Oh, cool! And we taught them soft skills and so forth. And so, let me just get this straight: your so you, the, the the website that we're all talking about is called what now? It's Go Seek Haven. Go Seek Haven. Now that is a separate. That's separate my, thing from yep. the empower thing. Yep. So I'm a radio personality. I'm a, I'm okay. a media personality, and I am. Do, I also speak uh-huh. on stages. Okay. Around empowerment, I can feel it. Yeah. I feel like you're on. It's like you're in my living room, but I feel. I feel like I'm in an auditorium. Listening. <laughs> are you empowered though? Are you ready to get I off feel, that chair? Uh, right uh, no, not quite. Not yet. Okay. But I will. We got some time. We got some time. Yeah, your energy is infectious, man. Thank you. So I, I have. I have a random question. Okay. And it's based on the fact that I believe that my understanding is that, like in Germany, they they spend a year studying the the Third Reich. You know, they spend mm-hmm. they they really get into it. And in my opinion, the answer to addiction is education and services, and that that I feel like there should be rehabs on you know every corner in every city in the country, um, and that you should be able to get help easily, mm-hmm. and that ki- kids should be educated deeply on the subject of drugs and alcohol and addiction, and it should be wound into our curriculum just the way sex education is wound in our curriculum. Mm-hmm. 
so what do you think about the idea of legalizing drugs and and using the money to fund all that? And well, I think we've kind of done that with the legal the legalization of marijuana. Yeah, and have things gotten better? Uh, you tell me. You're the you the stat man. My understanding 153 is that- people a day die of overdoses of opioids. Right. So big pharma has pumped out now fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Fentanyl is the number one killer. And in this and here in San Francisco, mm-hmm. when they started the COVID, get them into hotels. I came out here. This is a great story for you. I came out here before mm-hmm. it was all in the newspaper and so forth. I came out here mm-hmm. three times a month, 10 to 1 o'clock, 10 p.m. to 1 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. hung out with them. This is how they did it. A firefighter, police officer, or somebody would come in and they'd come to an alley and they would clear the alley. This mm-hmm. is a long answer to your question, but you'll understand why I'm telling you this. Okay. Because they legalized it in a form. They legalized the what? The use of drugs. Okay. So when I was arrested, if you smoked crack or were found with a pipe, that is a case because it's crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. It's a felony. Sure. doesn't matter if it's just residue in a pipe. Today, you can be smoking crack on the street in mm-hmm. front of a police officer mm-hmm. and they don't stop. That's true. I've seen it. They already sure. made that initiative mm-hmm. as long as they're not doing fentanyl. Fentanyl is a felony now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, follow me on this. What they did was they had the whole pill business, which is what San Francisco is built on, is mm-hmm. the hospitality industry, mm-hmm. right? restaurants and hotels. They took those hotels and they put homeless people in those hotels. And so they'd come to the alley and they'd say, hey, we're clearing this alley. Mm-hmm. You have 24 hours. These are your two options. Either mm-hmm. clear your stuff and go find somewhere else, or we'll put you up in a hotel. They would then take people to a table and they would say, do you know anybody that's in that alley with you? If you said no, then they would put you in a room by yourself mm-hmm. if you were a female. And they would put a table out and they'd go, are you a drug user? And you would see crack pipes, rigs, mm-hmm. tin foil, and a pamphlet on how to smoke fentanyl. I have that Ziploc bag. Right. I keep it yeah. so that no one can lie to me and tell me you didn't do this. This is across San Francisco. Okay. So at the concierge desk, when they're getting ready to check you into a hotel, they give you those things. Please, these will always be here. Mm-hmm. Don't go get them on the street. You can get this here. They ended up also bringing drugs to the home, to the hotels, to because mm-hmm. it's safety first. Now you're suffering a higher number of fentanyl deaths mm-hmm. with people being in the bed longer without being discovered. I was just down there last night. Story I can tell you, I'm actually going to be putting it on our platform. Mm-hmm. This woman that I know, she had a friend of hers three days before they found his body in one of the hotels. Oh, dear. Okay, so they're not doing wellness checks. They're providing these environments where they're allowed to use drugs, but now they're using drugs and this person's gone. What do you think the solution is? <laughs> I know it's a big question. But- I, all I can tell you is my experience, yeah. right? And I think that my experience helps enough people mm-hmm. that for that class of people that had no services, they had no family of origin, they have mm-hmm. no resources available to them, but they still play at a level mm-hmm. where they can't fall into... I couldn't get food stamps, right? Because I play at a little bit higher level than that. I have solutions for that, which is around recovery capital, which is the building, the the purposeful life on the compound that we're building for Howe Avenue. It's fully sustainable in in a village. Where? It's on Howe Avenue up in Sacramento. Oh, cool. And so it's five acre property with these containers and it's all solar. And so it's all going to be what we call aspirational living. In phase one, it's bay living, right? But over the fence, you can see that if I just volunteer X number of hours, mm-hmm. if I walk dogs, because many of these homeless people have dogs, there's a dog park on the property. You can walk dogs, groom dogs. I can do any of that work as a volunteer. Mm-hmm. I put in those hours. I can then aspirationally move 
into mm-hmm. more permanent housing. And so when you give a person a target, yeah. an aspiration to shoot for, I don't care who you are, you can recover your yeah. spirit. So the solution is us, the community. I believe community solves so much of what we deal with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, sure. Let me just say this to you, man. Mm-hmm. You're a therapist. You know that mammals, mm-hmm. pride, herd, they live in community. And when they don't, they die, they suffer, Yeah. right? When that community of pods of whales is separated, they then suffer and pass. True. You can't put somebody in solitary confinement for longer than 30 days. It mm-hmm. is considered inhumane because as a mammal, we cannot mm-hmm. survive alone. Addiction mm-hmm. is a disease of loneliness, isolation. Yeah. When you sure. look on the homeless streets, do you see them by themselves? No, they're congregating. Yeah, together. Yeah. Keep them them together. If you keep us together, you can recover us. That's fantastic. Um, let's talk about now. You are a walking resource, so your website <laughs> is a resource. Uh, you go around helping people. So I could just say, well, you know, if you have a loved one who's struggling or you're struggling, we'll just go talk to John. And right. <laughs> go do that. That sea cave. That'll do the whole thing. What are some practical measures somebody who is struggling with addiction can take to help themselves? I guess I, I feel like I'm being redundant because, well, your website is that. But what do people need to do or what do family members need to do or what can they do? So we'll first talk about family members. Okay. So I think that where I've found the most success around family members helping a loved one Mm -hmm. is the only help that you can actually give Mm -hmm. is that what we talked about, which is helping to create an appearance of a bottom, Mm -hmm. right? Start drawing those healthy boundaries Mm -hmm. of what you will and won't do anymore. And I've had a lot of success with people that we worked with in my journey here of people that are like, my son says he's going to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you live in Boston. So what are you going to do about it? But you keep taking that phone call and then he asks you for money. Yeah. What does having money have to do with him jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge? And so that the only reason why I mention that is, is that so many of the family members are being held hostage by the addict. Understand this. If you and I live in this area right here and I have COVID, and you don't ever leave here, but you're looking after me, you're giving me soup and everything, it's invariable that you're going to get sicker. Even if you don't catch COVID, if you're staying in this room with me, you're going to become recluse, right? You're Mm -hmm. going to start to adopt my behaviors Mm -hmm. of somebody that's sick. The same thing happens when I immerse myself in the life of someone that's sick. If he's sick, he's sick. Separate yourself. Keep it separate from you. You decide what you will and won't do and stick with that. This is your stipend per month. This is what I'll offer. This is what I won't offer. Stick with it. Mm -hmm. Stop changing with the tides and then work on your own recovery. Believe that you need recovery. Believe that. And I'm sure you're a proponent of that. Going to an Al-Anon, you mean? An Al-Anon or even a therapist. Like work through some of the things that are triggering you to where you feel like you actually can control another person's ability to do this or do that. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane that you would think that you have that. Those days were gone when I was feeding my kid and they said, I need food. That day is over. Yeah, you can only work on yourself, really. You can only work with how you deal with what's happening. I tell people that, you know, you think about addiction as having infected your entire family. That's right. The whole family is sick. The whole family. And the one who's actually using the chemicals is one component of that. Mm -hmm. And- if the whole if the whole unit is going to get better, the whole unit has to focus on healing itself. Right. So he, your son or daughter or mother or father, has to go to treatment and heal That's themselves. Right. And even a lot of times when people go to treatment and they got out of treatment, they come back and they've got all these healthy boundaries in their better spot. The family is still sick with addiction. So sick, and they all get all upset. Why don't you call me every day? Why aren't you doing mm-hmm. what I want? Well, mom and dad, I'm 
I'm living my own life now, right. and, I, and I and I need to, to do it this way. Right. Perfect example of that, and then we'll move on. Yeah. Is they come back from treatment, and mom says, "Did you go to a meeting today?" Yeah. Sorry. Why are you asking him about? Why do you think that bothers him so much? Yeah. Because he's become healthy. Yeah. He's now got agency over his own life, but you're asking him how many meetings he went to. Yeah. And which is the damn thing that made him sick in the first place. That's right. You're all, you're, you're, you're too much in his business. You yeah. let him do his own thing. Everybody needs help. You need to find a community of people that are going through what you're going through. Stop acting like you're going to do this all by yourself. Mm -hmm. That's the number one thing. We talk about community. The families that are the most successful that I work with mm -hmm. are families that have a community of people that went through the same thing they're going through. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. Bottom line. Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of controversy around it. Mm -hmm. But what it did for me was it built a community of people that finally accepted the fact and 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 say out loud, you know what, man? I do feel like I always have to excuse my blackness. Mm -hmm. I do always feel like I have to be careful how loud I am or mm -hmm. how demonstrative I am. We never talked about that stuff before. But now, because we have a community of people, mm -hmm. we're like, is it okay to say this? That mm -hmm. happens in all things around community. Do a thing for me. Yeah. Pretend you're talking to uh, 10,000 people who are struggling with alcohol or opiates or crack or something, and they're listening to this right now. And they listen. They don't know what to do. They don't. They 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 know that you're saying something smart. They they know that they're in trouble. They don't quite. They're in the fog of it all. Can you talk to those people for a few minutes? I can. That's a great place to put this. You're sitting there. You may have heard something that you like. You're motivated. That moment will pass five minutes after this is over, and you will have whatever life you have right now. You have that and worse. If you get up right now and you take an action, literally take an action. Seek out a meeting, seek out anything outside of yourself, a phone call that sounds drastic, call a detox center, call a hospital and say, I don't know what to do, but I don't want to do this anymore right now. If you miss that moment, the story I gave will not be yours. That's the difference between getting this and not getting it. There are people that want it. There are people who need it. You heard in my story, I needed it so many times. But until I do it, it doesn't work. And it's literally that. If I was talking to 10,000 people right now and I said, what do I do right now? Do it. Pick up the phone, call your local hospital. Pick up the phone, call a detox facility. Don't worry about your job. Don't worry about how it looks. Don't worry about anything else other than help. Just help me and just sit back like in a recliner, and let somebody else drive for just 30 days. That's all I'm asking. Take a break. I don't care if you don't have resources. They will come to you. Stop driving. Excellent. That's beautiful. Listen, I think it's a great place to end. Um, this was a really inspiring hour and a half, and I think I'm probably going to edit out five minutes of this. <laughs> this is going to be a nice, long episode, and it was worth every second of it. Listen, I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I feel honored to have had this conversation. Great. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, folks, thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, you're welcome to email me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com, or you can check out my website at benjaminrusick.com. Thanks again. And remember, if you ever find your plate is full, well, consider getting yourself a bigger plate. And what does that mean? It means that if your plate is full, if you are tapped out, you sometimes need more bandwidth. You need to meditate. You need to sleep more. You need to eat better. You need to exercise. That will increase your bandwidth. Hence, a larger plate. That's what that means. All right. Thank you so much.